Welcome to Search Engine. I'm PJ Vogt. Each week on the show, we answer a question we have about the world. No question too big, no question too small. This week, the thrilling conclusion to our series of stories about the animal kingdom, an accidental series we did not realize we were making, but which we are concluding this week with our friends at Radio Atlantic. They'll help us answer a question it never occurred to me to ask. Where did all the roaches go? That's after some ads. Search Engine is brought to you by Rosetta Stone. I only speak English, and honestly, not that well. I'm about to go to England to report a story where I'm at least going to get to pretend like I'm understanding people speaking a different language. But what I should do, what you should do, is try Rosetta Stone, the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app that truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. Rosetta Stone is a trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users and 25 languages offered. Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. And it's an amazing value. Lifetime membership has all 25 languages for any and all trips and language needs in life. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, search engine listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash search engine. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash search engine today. What's up? Hey, can you hear me okay? Yeah, you sound great. Okay. All right. Uh, so I'm going to just read the intro. So one of my favorite magazines in America is The Atlantic. It's one of the only places that consistently surprises me. And one of my favorite reporters in America is Hannah Rosen. She always oh. surprises me. This is true, Hannah. She told some of my favorite stories on Invisibilia. She's now hosting The Atlantic's flagship show, Radio Atlantic. It's a great podcast. However, recently, Radio Atlantic did a story that infuriated the team at Search Engine, infuriated us because they did it, and <laughs> we wanted to have done it. And also, it felt Search Engine-y, not that we have, like, a copyright on surprise or delight, but we were surprised and delighted by the story in the way that we try to surprise and delight the people who hear our stories. We were very mad, and then we realized, oh, we just asked Hannah if she could do the story on Search Engine. We don't have to be furious. Um, it's a story about cockroaches. Ugh. Ugh. <laughs> no, I mean, just because the words surprise and delight. Do they feel like words you're tired of hearing? <laughs> Am I that kind of person? Yeah, everybody. I just walk around and everyone says, you're so surprising and delightful. No, it's just that they're not words that you believe will be followed by the word cockroach. Oh, I see. It's like uh, not the third ingredient in the exactly. dish. Exactly. <laughs> People are expecting unicorn or starlight, but not cockroach. No, this is a surprising, delightful story about cockroaches. Exactly. 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 Can you just tell me, like, literally, for you, what was the origin of this story? <laughs> I called up the Slack because I, I thought you might ask me that question. Yes, so I get the Slack message from one of our science editors and a friend of mine, Dan Engber. I'm a fan of Dan's. Yeah, he's great. He was on Radio Lab. He 
writes great, long magazine stories. He and I used to work together at Slate. Do you want to hear the message? So this was just a Slack that you guys were having one day in the office? Yes, yes. Okay. I'm just going to read you one sentence. (laughs) Dan writes, this is a piece of poetry. When I was a kid, we collected cockroaches and played with them. (laughs) 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 And I think he expected me to... (laughs) To be just completely horrified. But instead, I wrote back something like, me too! Exclamation. So that's how it started. You guys were genuinely musing to each other. It wasn't like, hey, let me show you this article I already wrote. You guys were just making conversation over Slack. But he had a question that he wanted to investigate. And he wanted you to, he wanted the question to be contagious for you as well. Well, it's a little deeper than that. What's what's underneath his question is this feeling he had that he was deluded, which is a feeling that, a lot of people who grew up like we did have. Like, it couldn't possibly be true. Like, we have these memories, but did it happen that way, you know? Yeah. So after I got this message from Dan, he wrote, I wonder if it might work for audio. I was like, yes. The answer (laughs) is yes. Please come to the studio. So he did. All right. So, what are we even talking about? We're talking about cockroaches. Cool. Cool. And um, a forgotten moment in the history of cockroaches or the history of American innovation, I guess. We're talking about the fact that cockroaches were everywhere and then they vanished. Hmm. I actually lived through this myself. Like, I was a, a child of the cockroach 80s. I had cockroaches in my house all over the place, too. And... It's almost like hard to remember how pervasive they were. So I grew up in New York City. Where? In Morningside Heights. In an apartment? In an apartment. Okay. So middle-class families in the 1980s in New York City had a lot of cockroaches, as I can say from personal experience. Just a number of cockroaches that I think is unimaginable to younger people (laughs) to my younger colleagues here at the Atlantic? Um, Against my, really like every fiber of my being, I'm going to (laughs) say, paint me a picture. (laughs) (laughs) Um, They'd be all over the place all the time, like in full view, in day, in night. Um, Certainly if you went into the kitchen at night and turned on the light, they would scatter. It wouldn't be like you'd see individual insects, you'd see like a wave pattern. You and your brother, let's say, might be taking the Cheerios out of the cabinet and open it up and pour into the bowl, and cockroaches would come out with the Cheerios, which I think sounds really terrifying (laughs) to, to today's New Yorker, but at the time it was just like time to get a new box of Cheerios. There's really this feeling that it was like a, um, a natural phenomenon, like an endless sense of 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 being enveloped in roaches, like it was an atmosphere of roaches or a or a, or an ocean. You're speechless. <laughs> Actually, just to weigh in, I do a hundred percent relate. I <laughs> I grew up in an apartment building in Queens, and exactly your memory. Like the only difference is it was cornflakes and not Cheerios, but they were everywhere. Although, you know, it's weird. I I can't seem to remember if they freaked me out or not. 
Like, what, did they freak you out? Like, did you scream when you saw cockroaches or call for your mommy? Or, like, what did you do? So, I don't think we were that squeamish about them. In fact, I know we weren't squeamish because the other thing I remember vividly was my brother and I would play with the cockroaches. We would use our wooden blocks and build, like, obstacle courses, sort of, (laughs) and try to do cockroach Olympics. Did you actually touch them with your fingers? I mean, it's kind of hard to imagine that I didn't. It, there's sort of a dreamy quality to all this where I almost doubt my own memories. And so, just to do kind of a gut check, I wanted to call my brother. Okay. First of all, did we have cockroaches in our apartment growing up? We had a lot of cockroaches in our apartment growing up. And I, being a little bit older than you, remember it extremely clearly but it still seems somewhat fantastical, <laughs> the, the prevalence of cockroaches in our life. Okay, so first I asked him about the cereal. Okay. I loved Rice Krispies. And they used to have like an, a slightly over-toasted Rice Krispie that was like a darker brown. Yeah, the occasional brown one. The brown one. And I definitely remember a lot of arguments about whether... Something was a overtoasted rice crispy, a small overtoasted rice crispy, or a roach duty, and we would frequently have these arguments. <laughs> He's like completely chill about the roach duty for breakfast situation. If only it was just the rice krispies, Hannah. <laughs> we had these special medicine cups. They were sort of like plastic hollow spoons. Mm-hmm. And I remember one time. Mom poured the whatever it was, probably Dimetap or something like that, in, and I saw something swimming in it. Oof. And I'm like, there's a roach in there. I swear, there's a roach in there. And then she held it up to the light, and there was nothing in there. I didn't want to take it. Finally, she convinced me. I drank the whole thing. I felt the roach crawling around all over my mouth. And I spit it all into the sink. And uh, she said, oh, <laughs> there was a roach in it. <laughs> Roaches were just everywhere in our lives. So if we were constantly like throwing out something just because a few roaches walked over it, we wouldn't have anything. So I just want to establish the context here. Mm-hmm. In the 1980s, it wasn't just that there were a lot of cockroaches in my apartment <laughs> or yours <laughs> or my brother's apartment. Mm-hmm or even in New York City, Mm. there were a lot of cockroaches everywhere. Everywhere in cities or everywhere, everywhere? I would say everywhere in cities, but it was like a national news story. Mm -hmm. There would be newspaper articles about cockroaches on a semi-regular basis. Okay. So cockroaches everywhere, cockroaches bad for your health. Cockroaches everywhere, cockroaches bad for your health, cockroaches in the nation's capital. Congress certainly has its hands full these days with the deficit, the MX, Central America, and now debugging. So this is an NBC nightly news story with Tom Brokaw from the spring of 1985, which is a very important moment in the history of cockroaches. It's very serious. The problem, they're in our desks, they're under tables, they're everywhere. Some members of Congress are trying valiantly to fight back. Congressman Al McCandless has installed this black box, It exudes a sexy scent which attracts female roaches, which are then roasted by an electric grill. I mean, I think just in that short clip, you hear how 
completely helpless we were to deal with the cockroach problem. We were trying everything. Yes, it does have a throw spaghetti at the wall. <laughs> like, this is the nation's capital, and we can't, we don't really have an answer, nor is anyone pretending to. It's just like, they tried this, they tried that. <laughs> Congressman Silvio Conti, dressed to kill today, proclaimed a war on capital cockroaches. A company from his home district has donated 35,000 roach traps to the capital, but Conti said more help than that is needed. And I want to appeal to the President of the United States. I am certain that President Reagan wants to get rid of many troublesome cockroaches who run around the halls of Congress as possible. So please join me in this war on the Capitol cockroaches and squash one for the Gipper. So... Well, can I ask you, am I allowed to ask you a question? Yeah, yeah, of course, sure, yeah. So do you remember a change in the um, prevalence of cockroaches at some point in your life as a New Yorker? You know, it's so interesting you say that because I remember my childhood cockroaches just being part of the background and just something you had to deal with all the time. And my mom still lives in that apartment. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember coming back from college, and I don't have an, I, I couldn't say an exact date, but it just wasn't in the part of the conversation anymore. We weren't constantly dealing with cockroaches. My mother wasn't talking about cockroaches. It just wasn't a, like, it just wasn't a thing anymore. Mm -hmm. Okay, so my premise here. Okay. And this, the memory that has sparked all of this is, that at a certain point, there was a new way to control cockroaches. The bombs were out. Now we had combat roach traps. Do you remember those? Wait, you mean like that little plastic disc where the roaches go in and, and then they die or something? Like, like that's what this is about? Yes. That is the amazing American invention that we have all forgotten. The thing that sits in aisle 13 on the top shelf, that's the amazing invention? The thing that should be sitting in a museum. <laughs> the people who invented combat are American heroes. They did something. I mean, you have to think about the fact that the cockroach was and is a symbol of indestructibility, right? This is the animal that's going to outlive us after a nuclear war. Uh -huh. This is, in, if you've ever seen Wally. -E, it's a post-apocalyptic Earth. All that's left is a robot and a cockroach. Uh-huh. It's the animal that cannot be killed. And then, in the 1980s, we did it. I think it's fair to say we solved the problem, and I don't mean solved it completely and eliminated cockroaches forever, but really took a huge problem and made it much smaller. And that wasn't just true in my apartment, but across the country. In fact... I found evidence that that is exactly what happened. And so I just was fascinated by the question of who did that and, and what it means that we don't even really fully remember that it happened. Uh -huh. Let me introduce you to a very important figure in the history of cockroaches who has a, a catchphrase, and his catchphrase is, always bet on the roach. Mm. He's... Um, a member of the Pest Management Hall of Fame. Are you familiar with Pi Chi Omega? The fraternal organization dedicated to furthering the science of pest control. Uh-huh. They have an annual scholarship called the Dr. Austin Frischman Scholarship. Hello? Hi, Dr. Frischman? Speaking. Hi, my name's Dan Anger. And so I... Um, 
got him on the line, and he turns out to be sort of like, like a cockroach mystic, almost. <laughs> what is that? Just any question you ask, you, you might get an answer like this. I want you to picture a landfill. It's snowing. It's about 28 degrees out, okay? And you're there with seven or eight men, and you're digging away at the snow because you're teaching them how to bait on a landfill. All right? Mm-hmm. And then out of the snow in that cold comes American roaches running up, bubbling up, 5, 10, 15, 60, 100, 200, from the smoldering heat down below. I love this man. He makes it seem, like, biblical. So, okay, so where does this cockroach mystic, Dr. Frischman, fit into the story? So Frischman is in the story almost from the very start. In 1985, and in the lead-up to 1985, Frischman had been hired by a company called American Cyanamid. And American Cyanamid researchers had had this product that they were selling for use in controlling fire ants. Mm -hmm. And the researchers were aware of the fact that this fire ant poison worked on cockroaches, and in fact, they used it in the lab to control cockroaches. Their own cockroach problem. Yes. Yeah, yeah, they put it in peanut butter, and they put it around the lab just so they could continue to do their work on fire ants. Mm-hmm. But then the company was, you know, making this effort to try to figure out, well, can we repurpose some of our industrial products for consumer use and so forth? Yeah. So you've got a hot new roach control product. Who do you call? Austin Frischman. Oh, and I said, well— this is going to be difficult, and it may not work. And the girl said to me, listen, do you want to do the project or not? <laughs> I said, no, I'll do it, just so you know what we're up against. Okay, so the, everything we had up until that point were these, you know, these insecticides that we'd just been using for years, and the roaches had just developed resistance to them. Even if you, you, know, you killed 99% of them, the ones you didn't kill would have some mutation that protected them, or they'd have a a thicker shell or something, a thicker exoskeleton, and they'd survive and reproduce. And now your insecticides weren't working anymore. Right. So they would just keep outsmarting us. Right. And so one of the things, this new product that made it different from from the uh, the old ones, was it wasn't just a spray that you'd put in the corners. It was actually a bait. That little, the, the black disc had something in it that sort of like, tasted like oatmeal cookie that mm. roaches loved, mm-hmm. and they would come in and get it and then take it out. We were filming the cockroaches, and we found that only 25% of the cockroaches ate the bait, but 100% of the cockroaches would die. That's Philip Kaler. He's another cockroach expert. And what he's talking about here is the fact that like, th- this stuff would kill roaches that hadn't even eaten it. It was a slow-acting toxicant that allowed transfer to other members of the colony. Wait, by they would regurgitate it, or how, how does it get transferred? Well, there are several mechanisms of, of transfer. The main one would be that, that cockroaches will eat another cockroach's poop. It was actually after this work with combat baits that it became uh, known that cockroaches actually feed poop to their young. And there are actually other methods of transfer of toxicant as well. 
there is, like you said, regurgitation where they get sick and they regurgitate some and other cockroaches will come and feed on that vomit. Uh, there's also cannibalism where, where a cockroach will attack another cockroach and eat it. And there's also uh, necrophagy where the cockroaches will eat the dead. <laughs> Each method more charming than the <laughs> next. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Vomit, poop, or cannibalism. This seems exciting. <laughs> no, I mean, if I were them, this would be really exciting. Like, I, I'm just imagining them, you know, like an Oppenheimer sort of sitting, <laughs> sitting in their lab, like figuring out every element of this and how are we not going to, you know, how are we going to make it safe? How's it going to work? It's exciting. Yeah, they were on the verge of something big. We would run to the lab early in the morning to see the results from the night before mm -hmm. or stay up half the night and watch. And we began to see you know, what was happening. In the beginning, I was hesitant at the whole thing, but as we began to do the work and I saw the results first in the lab, it, it was a breakthrough, okay? So Frischman was among the first to take this breakthrough product, put it in a syringe, take it out of the lab, and start using it in restaurants, diners, to see if it worked. And I went into a small diner, a little luncheonette place. And a bunch of guys were sitting and eating sandwiches. And I was behind the counter, so I was down low. And I <laughs> I had the bait, and I saw the roaches in a crack, and I just put a little tab. As I went to go do it, the roaches started coming out. And they were gobbling it up. <laughs> you what? And you I'm, saw in real uh, time them come to the bait. I was the first person. <laughs> in the world. <laughs> I was shaken, okay? I'm telling you, I was shaken. I still have that syringe, that original one. <laughs> this is the moment. This is, this is the brink of the relatively roach-free world that we live in today. Now we had the little black discs, I, I would say, and, you know, two inches across or something. With an entrance with and an, an entrance, exit. With an entrance and an exit. I had written a book called The Cockroach Combat Manual. So that's how it got its name. And Frischman is going to take this product on the road. People would write in it was, uh, horror stories, and they won a prize, the product, and me. <laughs> and we would go into those places and knock out the population. So... He takes this to Texas. He takes this to Georgia. They, they do an event at the Museum of Natural History in New York City. They go to the Capitol. Remember the Tom Brokaw report? Those are combat traps. Yeah. And then ads start appearing on television. Combat discs use roaches to kill roaches. Look. I had roaches in my cereal. Put combat discs where roaches are, in places you wouldn't dare spray. Combat works. The roaches are not in my cereal. They're gone. Control roaches where they live. Combat, because where they live is where they die. So this wasn't just a marketing campaign. I mean, the product really did work. What do you mean it worked? Well, cockroach numbers were going down. You can find signs everywhere. Actually, a guy I went to high school with wrote an article for the New York Times in 2004 and he reported that there was a, there had been a survey of federal buildings and their cockroach complaints between 1988 and 1999. So this is combat rollout era. And the number of complaints fell by 93%. Wow. 
I also found a 1991 story from the New York Times, again, right in that combat zone. And a New York City housing official is quoted as saying, there was a time when people were horrified at roaches running rampant. And now everybody keeps saying, where did they go to? So it's a thing. It's like an actual documented thing. Yeah. And yet it's not a huge moment. Like, there aren't a lot of stories saying, yay us, we've conquered the cockroach problem. No, there are not. (laughs) There are stories about combat success as a almost like a business case study. Mm -hmm. There are stories that remark upon the fact that there are fewer cockroaches than there used to be. Mm -hmm. But nothing that's like this enormous giant urban problem has finally been solved by this ragtag crew of amazing scientists. (laughs) Nothing of that nature. There's a reason why I had to introduce Austin Frischman to you as a member of the Pest Management Hall of Fame. And you weren't like, oh, you mean the guy in the back of the quarter? Yeah. (laughs) Right. Right, but why? I mean, that is the question that has been keeping me up at night. And I have some ideas. Those ideas after the break. Search Engine is brought to you by Seed Probiotics. Small actions can have big benefits, like how taking care of your gut can support whole body health. Seed's DS1 Daily Symbiotic benefits your gut, skin, and heart health in just two little capsules a day. My relationship with my body is a bit of a nightmare. Probiotics can help with things that are important to me, like digestion and skin health. Your body is an ecosystem, and great health starts in the gut. Your gut is a central hub for various pathways through the body. And a healthy gut microbiome means benefits for digestion, skin health, heart health, your immune system, and more. Probiotics and prebiotics work best when used consistently, like other routine health habits. Seed subscription service easily builds DS1 into your routine, with no refrigeration needed. Trust your gut with Seed's DS1 Daily Symbiotic. Go to seed.com search and use code 25SEARCH to get 25% off your first month. That's 25% off your first month of Seed's DS1 Daily Symbiotic at seed.com search. Code 25SEARCH. Search Engine is brought to you by Aura Frames. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi-connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app, and if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. I struggle with Mother's Day. I always feel like it's really hard to figure out what to give my mom. Photos of me, unfortunately, something that she would really enjoy. From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, and even the friends in your life, every mom loves an Aura frame. Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get 30 bucks off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code search engine at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply.
Dan, you you said you had some ideas about why this discovery didn't get the credit and hoopla that it deserved. So my brother had a good theory about this. I said, well, how come we just, our family, why didn't we celebrate and like go out to dinner or something? Um, The roaches are gone. And he said, well, it's because we just assumed they would come back. Hmm. So I think it was, that must be part of it, right? That there was like, oh, this new thing works, but like, yeah, everything works the first time you do it. Right. So there was never one moment where you realize that the world had changed. Or it could be that, you know, when things change for the better, we just have a tendency to just accept, you know, the new, better reality and pretend the old thing didn't happen. Like, hey, that's done. I'd rather not discuss it. Like, what's an example of that? Like the Spanish flu, for example. There's a a, a famous gap in in art and literature about the Spanish flu. There is not a great literature of this cataclysmic event in the 19-teens. You'd think there would be, but there isn't. Why not? Probably because it was traumatic. And actually, you know, I think that's similar to the experience with cockroaches because when, at least in my memory when I was living with them, it wasn't just like kind of gross or annoying or an inconvenience. It's really unsettling. Like, it lives as this constant undercurrent of anxiety and a sense that you just don't have control over things. It's like a terrible feeling. Like a free-floating, pervasive anxiety hanging over you at all times. Yes, yes. Can we talk about the Cold War for a second? Uh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So... We were talking about how the cockroach was this um, symbol of indestructibility that would outlast us in the event of nuclear war. Um, This was, I mean, the cockroach was, in a way, a symbol of the Cold War. Like, the the, um, nuclear disarmament groups would put ads in the newspaper with just a picture of a cockroach Mm. to try to, you know, be like, wake up, America, we have to disarm now, or this is the future. So it all just got blended in our heads, like nuclear war anxiety, cockroach anxiety. Yes. And then those two anxieties were being unwound at almost exactly the same time. I mean, just to be frank, this is a highly tenuous theory, but I do want to line these things up. So, you know, 1985, the Tom Brokaw report, the combat is coming out, you know, spring of 1985. That's also when Mikhail Gorbachev comes to power. Hmm. In fact, Silvio Conti, the congressman who on the steps of the Capitol is saying squash one for the Gipper, mm-hmm. touting combat traps which are manufactured in his district. Five days later, he's in Moscow for a historic meeting with Gorbachev at the Kremlin that is considered a watershed moment in um, the wind down of the Cold War. Gorbachev says at the present time, Relationship are in a nice age. However, he said, spring is a time of renewal. I'm just saying the guy wearing the exterminator outfit on the steps of the Capitol, touting combat, gave Ronald Reagan the advice to meet with Mikhail Gorbachev. Like in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the span of a week? <laughs> in less than a week. In less than oh. a week, he was in, he was in Moscow. And you start to see combat traps are... are you know, spreading through the country as Glasnost is spreading through the USSR. (laughs) (laughs) And in the years that follow, 
We have the fall of the Berlin Wall and the collapse of the Soviet Union. Those are exactly the years when the cockroach populations are finally diminishing, when we're winning the war on cockroaches and we're winning the Cold War. It's happening concurrently. So what you're saying is our nuclear fears dissipate, our cockroach fears dissipate, and what? I, what I'm saying is it was the cockroach that took over the imagination as this thing. So they made sense to stand in for nuclear fears. Mm-hmm. Going the other way, once we were free of that nuclear anxiety, we just sort of glided into a roach-free world. Okay, so Hannah. Yes. I guess what I hear Dan theorizing there is that part of the reason we don't remember cockroaches is because they happen to disappear at the same time the thing they were a related metaphor for disappeared. And so it was just like the way the brain works and language works and metaphor works, they just kind of got tossed out with the trash. That's the theory, right? Yeah, it's almost like the cockroach became the mascot. You know, it was like a thing that that sort of came into fashion. And then when nuclear war fell out of fashion, so the cockroach fell out of fashion. It's something like that. Are you convinced? I mean, he was clearly trying to convince me. I got almost there. I find it to be... A hard theory to evaluate, which I guess is a way of saying I'm not convinced, <laughs> but only because I wasn't there or I wasn't cognizant of history and its sweep at that point. And so I'm like, yeah, maybe, maybe. I don't know. Like, I don't mm-hmm. know. Yeah. Um, You guys published this episode about your personal relationship with roaches and how roaches have mostly been eradicated. What was the, have you gotten any interesting uh, feedback since that came out? Because I can imagine both of those things inducing emails. <laughs> well, both Dan's mother and my mother were like, we didn't have any cockroaches. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> they both thought that we were exaggerating. Did they demand corrections? They were just like, we didn't have any. I didn't make you drink that medicine with the cockroach in it. We didn't have any cockroaches. There were no cockroaches in our cereal. <laughs> It's like, Mom, here's a here's a new word for you. Gaslight. Go look it up in the dictionary. <laughs> do you think that they've just deleted it from their memory, or do you think that they were embarrassed, or what? I think they were embarrassed. Like, it just, ugh, it filled them with ick on their skin to think, like, somebody out there is attaching me to a domestic scene with lots of roaches running around. I mean, my mom is a cl- clean freak, which just <laughs> goes to show how ubiquitous the cockroaches were. Yeah. The other thing I wanted to ask you that I wondered about listening to your story is sometimes I get in a debate with people in the real world that I don't think is a good debate. Like, I mean, I think it's like an unproductive debate, but like I have friends on both sides of this where like I have friends who either it's very important for them to prove that the world is getting worse, that like this would be the worst time in history to have been born. And I have friends who feel like it's very important to establish that actually, despite all the things that are happening that are bad, this is the best time to be alive. But listening to your story, I'm like, oh, part of the reason it is hard to notice if the world is getting better is there is just a part of human nature where once something gets solved, we stop thinking about it. And cockroaches feel like almost a perfect example of that. Totally. I also like to collect evidence, like tiny bits of evidence. 
like cockroaches, that the world is getting better. Not because I'm an optimist, which I'm not, but just because the human bias is so strongly towards everything went downhill the day I was born. Yes. Like, yeah. And I just find that annoying. Like, it's just a, an argument I have with my brother over and over and over again about how there's more crime in New York now. And there isn't. There isn't. No, there, there definitely isn't. isn't. No, I'm the same way. I'm not an optimist. I do tend to want to take the side of the world is getting better only because saying the world is getting worse strikes me somehow as a kind of self-centeredness masquerading as empathy. Amen. So true. I was going to say narcissism, solipsism. I didn't know what the word was, but this guy, Adam Mastriani, he did the best series of studies about, you know, why do we all think that everything's going downhill when it's not? The most shocking thing that he discovered is that people date the decline basically to the day they were born. You know? Interesting. Yes. It's like we all conceive of ourselves as the center of history and it all went downhill from there. It's crazy. Hannah Rosen, host of Radio Atlantic. Dan Engber is a senior editor at The Atlantic and the mind behind The Cockroach Story. You should check out the show. Some of our favorite episodes, there's one about people falling in love with their AI companions and then being heartbroken when the code is changed. There's another about an engineer in Gaza whose sole job is just to keep the water flowing. We'll have links to both in our newsletter. I am going to keep Hannah, though, for one more minute because she has a recommendation for us. This recommendation is a book that made her feel uncomfortable to read. Honestly, it felt kind of uncomfortable to even hear about. That recommendation after some ads. Search Engine is brought to you by LinkedIn Jobs. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. LinkedIn isn't just a job board. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but may be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. LinkedIn knows that small businesses are wearing so many hats and might not have the time or resources to hire. LinkedIn is constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process even easier and quicker. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash pjsearch. That's linkedin.com slash pjsearch to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. With Rocket Money, I have full control over my subscriptions and a clear view of my expenses. I can see all my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, Rocket Money can help me cancel it with a few taps. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate lower bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They will deal with customer service for you. Rocket Money gave me a free trial because they're on the podcast. I started using it. I really like it. I am now actually paying for a subscription for them. Um, it's not very much money, but the funny thing is that 
it shows me my Rocket Money subscription on Rocket Money. And I have considered trying to get Rocket Money to negotiate the price of their subscription down against themselves. We'll see if it works. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash search. That's rocketmoney.com slash search. Rocketmoney.com slash search. Okay, Hannah, what is your recommendation? Oof, I just finished this book and I, PJ, I don't know what you're going to think about this. Oh, Okay. I feel excited at your (laughs) wonder and uh, discomfort. Okay. I really want um, people to read this and then email me and talk to me about it. It's the book Molly by Blake Butler. Blake was the husband of Molly, who's no longer with us. And it's a very intense and revealing portrait of a marriage. But I think what I'm thinking about is like, was it okay to write this book? It feels like a stealing of someone's life. And not in a good way, not in a way that's flattering. And I'm just, like, wondering about it. I've never quite read what feels like a memoir of someone else's life. Oh, that's so interesting. Was she a writer? She was a writer, and she was a poet. Um, She was on the Great British Bake Off, the American edition. She was also a great baker. But she's a pretty well-known poet, and he's a novelist. And he wrote this book, and there's just some edge in it which I can't quite decide if you can do this to a person. She she died, she died by suicide? Yes, she died by suicide and supposedly said, write our story. Wow. But he reveals like so many of her secrets and things he didn't even know that he learns along the way. And it's also constructed because he's a novelist. So that kind of weirds me out too. Like, there's a reveal. It's structured kind of like a novel in which things unfold at a certain kind of rate to keep you reading, very successfully so. And yet, like, she is, you know, the portrait of her is not lovable. Wow. Which is also, like, the rule is supposed to be that when someone dies, you make them lovable. Yeah, which is an American rule, which I never loved. Like, I admire the honesty, and I ad- I kind of admire him telling us everything. But I also feel protective of this person, Molly, who I don't know. I don't know. It's so complicated whether this is okay or not. Anyway, read it. That's a great recommendation. Thank you. I'm excited to get to have an opinion about it. Good. <laughs> Excellent. Search Engine is a presentation of Odyssey and Jigsaw Productions. It was created by PJ Vote and Shruti Pinamanani, and is produced by Garrett Graham and Noah John. Theme, original composition, and mixing by Armin Bazarian. The original Radio Atlantic episode called The Cockroach Cure was hosted by Hannah Rosen. It was produced by Ethan Brooks, edited by Jocelyn Frank, fact-checked by Michelle Soraka, and engineered by Rob Smirsiak. Special thanks to Sam Schechner for his roach reporting in the New York Times. Claudine Abade is the executive producer for Atlantic Audio, and Andrea Valdez is the managing editor. Surge Engine's executive producers are Jenna Weiss-Berman and Leah Reese-Dennis. Thanks to the team at Jigsaw, 
Alex Gibney, Rich Perello, and John Schmidt, and to the team at Odyssey. J.D. Crowley, Rob Morandi, Craig Cox, Eric Donnelly, Matt Casey, Kate Hutchison, Laura Curran, Josephina Francis, Kurt Courtney, and Hilary Schaff. Our agent is Oren Rosenbaum at UTA. Follow and listen to Search Engine with PJ Vote now for free on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. That's it for us this week. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week.